Verse 10. Due to the noise caused by the king and his nobles, the queen's mother then entered the banquet room. And she said, O king, live forever. Don't be alarmed. Don't be shaken. There is a man in your kingdom who was with who has within him a spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, he proved to have insight, discernment, and wisdom like that of the gods. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, appointed him chief of the magicians, astrologers, wise men, and diviners. Thus there are found in this man, Daniel, whom the king renamed Belteshazzar, an extraordinary spirit, knowledge, and skill, to interpret dreams, solve riddles, and decipher naughty problems. Now summon Daniel... And he will disclose the interpretation. The queen mother comes in. This is not his queen, not his wife. The idea of the queen coming in, it's very clear that she has a good knowledge of Nebuchadnezzar. She has a good knowledge of Daniel. And so she's been a woman that's been around for a while. Most scholars think that this might either be Nebuchadnezzar's wife who is very likely to have converted along with Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, that would be a huge change to seeing your husband. Um, when his conversion, and that she has seen everything that Daniel has done, or maybe Amiel Marduk's queen in some kind of a sense. And it was not uncommon for the queens, after the husbands would die, to still be around and have some kind of prominent power or influence or that whatnot in the kingdom. But what's interesting here is, once again, the Bible is using a female to humiliate and disgrace a powerful man. In a culture where men dominate things and men are rulers and men are supposed to know everything and they're very arrogant in a leadership sense. Not that all men are arrogant, but the powerful and the, um, the, the influential. Women often are used. We see this over and over again. Remember with Barak and he was commanded to defeat Sisera in the battle in the book of Judges chapter 4. And he says, oh, I'm not going to do it unless you, the prophet, go with me, Deborah. So he basically says, you're not good enough, God. I want a prophet. She says, fine, a woman is going to get the glory. And so J.L. gets the glory for killing Sisera. And then we see even with later, Abimelech, the son of Gideon, is priding himself and flaunting himself. And then a woman just drops a millstone in his head and pops it like a watermelon. And so we see that. And then we see David, who's all cocky, and somebody won't give him food. And so he decides he's going to kill everybody in the entire village and just massacre everybody. And then Abigail shows him up with his, her wisdom and convinces him to repent and not do it. And so we can go on and on and on again where women are constantly used by God to humiliate and lower cocky men of power to show them up. Because culturally speaking, how could a woman ever do that? And that's the way they view it. And yet God is showing, no, 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 no. That you've become inflated. You've become inflated. And so once again, God is using a woman. And not just a woman, but a woman who's not an Israelite. Another nation. And so she knows of Daniel. So not only does Belshazzar have nothing of his own to flaunt, nothing of his own to, to um, speak of anything that he's accomplished, but he doesn't even know his own history. He doesn't even, he's not even wise enough to know to, who to even go to for the information. And so he's completely ignorant of how to solve this problem, yet the woman can solve the problem. And it shows that the woman is the wise one. 
And this theme of women being wise is a constant theme throughout the Bible. Not only are they showing up men, but they are also extremely wise as they deal with these matters. And so she brings Daniel. Now Daniel is either not known in this royal um, room because either he has been forced into retirement because I have no use for you, I'd rather just drink and party, or he is um, removed himself and he's gone somewhere else because he's just older. Verse 13, So Daniel was brought in before the king, and the king said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel who is the one of the captives of Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard about you, how there is a spirit of the gods in you, and how you have insight, discernment, and extraordinary wisdom. Now the wise men and the astrologers were brought before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretations. But they were unable to disclose the interpretation of the message. However, I have heard that you are able to provide interpretations and decipher knotty problems. I think that's, if your translation doesn't have this, the complicated problems, not like naughty bad, not the British sense of naughty. How, if you are able to read this writing and make known to me its interpretations, you will wear purple and have a golden collar around your neck and be third ruler in the kingdom. He says, I have heard about you. Yet the words he says are exactly the same words that the queen has. So he gives this impression that I know of you. But the fact that he uses her exact words means I just learned about you 10 minutes ago. But he's not revealing that part like, like I've always known about you. I just, it just took me a while to get there. He says, I need you and I will reward you in the same way that I promised everybody else. Verse 17, but Daniel replied to the king, keep your gifts and give your rewards to someone else. So Dan, remember, the things of God cannot be bought or sold. And, and Daniel is not going to make money off of the ministry of God. However, I will read the writing for the king and make known its interpretation. As for you, O king, the Most High God bestowed on your father Nebuchadnezzar a kingdom, a kingdom, greatness, honor, and majesty. Due to the greatness that he bestowed on him, all peoples, nations, and language groups were trembling with fear before him. He killed whom he wished. He spread spared whom he wished. He exalted whom he wished, and he brought low whom he wished. And when his mind became arrogant and his spirit filled with pride, he was disposed, deposed of his royal throne and his honor was removed from him. He was driven from human society. His mind was changed to that of an animal. He lived with a wild donkey and he was fed grass like oxen. And his body became damp with the dew of the sky until he came to understand that the Most High God rules over human kingdoms and he appoints over them whoever he wishes." Now, there's a couple of things going on here. First, notice that there might almost be a sarcastic, you're not good as Nebuchadnezzar. Like, look at how he's like, he was a powerful king. He built all this stuff. He did what he wanted. No one can stop him. Everybody respected him. And there is a little bit, you are nothing compared to him. You, you don't even come anywhere close to that. He was truly a powerful king that was unstoppable and accomplished a lot of things. Do not misinterpret this. Daniel is not saying this merely to insult Belshazzar. And he's not saying this merely because he thinks, wow, Nebuchadnezzar was really cool and all the people he destroyed in the empires that he built. We know that that's not who Daniel is. He's saying this to say, 
you are nothing compared to the power and the absolute power and the accomplishments of Nebuchadnezzar. And yet God so easily brought him down. How much more can he do that with you? It is not meant to insult him or to praise the pagan accomplishments of Nebuchadnezzar. It's meant to put Belshazzar in his place in relation to Yahweh. That's the main purpose. If God can do this to basically the most powerful king the world has ever seen, then how much more can he do it to you? So do not just bring me to merely interpret this. There's a deeper message here, and that is Yahweh is supreme. And your life hangs in the balance of whether you acknowledge this or not. And that's kind of the context or the prologue to what is coming as he interprets this. Verse 22, But you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, although you knew all this, Instead, you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. Okay, so we don't know how much he knows about Daniel's role in it, but everybody would have known about Nebuchadnezzar and him being turned into an... I mean, that was seven years. There's no way he would have not known about that. And yet he did not heed that. You brought before you the vessels from his temple, and you and your nobles together with your wives and concubines drank wine from them, and you praised the gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone gods that cannot see or hear or comprehend. The gods that you worship are inferior to Yahweh. But you have not glorified God, who has in his control your very breath and all your ways. Therefore, the palm of his of a hand was sent from him, and this writing was inscribed. Now the other reason for the hand is that the hand is often seen as the hand of power, the right hand. And throughout the ancient world, the right hand is seen as the authority of the king or the authority of the God. And they would often carry their scepter in that hand. And they would pronounce judgment with that hand. And the idea is that the scepter is mightier than the pen, so to speak. It was their ability to command and change lives. And you see this with even the pharaohs, where they would carry the scepter of power and authority in one hand, and then the shepherd's crook of taking care of the people in the other hand. And those things together were viewed as the care and provision, left hand, and the mighty hand of power, right hand. And we see this even in Egypt. Notice that when God says, My hand will work great wonders for the Egyptians. And then the Egyptians, when they were seeing all the plagues, says, This is the finger or the hand of God at work. And in Isaiah, God says, I am ticked that no one in Israel is righteous enough to bring judgment against sin. And now my own right hand has to work salvation. And so the idea here is this is the hand of authority. And so it's not just I am better than Nabu, but the palm, the finger, the hand of God that has worked all throughout history is going to determine your future and not your hand of authority, not your scepter. For every breath and all your ways are controlled by the Him. Verse 25, this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene Mene Tekel Parson. Every time I read that, I just... 
when I was telling this story to my girls, they just start giggling every time I say this phrase. They're like, Nini, Nini, Taiko Parson. And like for like a whole week, they just kept saying it to each other and giggling. And so every time I read it now, that just pops in my head. This is the interpretation of the words. As for Mene, God has numbered your kingdom, kingdom's days, and brought it to an end. And as for Tekel, you are weighed on the balances and found to be lacking. And as for Paris, your kingdom is divided and given over into the Medes and the Persians. You have been weighed, you have been measured, and you have been found wanting. And God is invoking the ancient imagery of the Egyptians and all these gods where your works are weighed on these scales. And if your bad day, deeds do not match up to what's supposed to be, you don't go. Now, God is not saying that's exactly how it works. But the idea is that I'm using the imagery of your culture to communicate that you have failed. You have fallen short. So basically, if you translate this, you have been weighed, you have been measured, and you've been found wanting into Pauline language, it is for all has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Your works, your abilities don't come anywhere near the mark of what God has expected from you. And because you have not repented, that's why you're under judgment. Remember, oftentimes in the Bible, repentance trumps the law. The law demands death when you violate it. But David escapes death when he repents, we escaped eternal damnation when we repent at the cross. Many times the law can be over, not consequences of the law, but the condemnation, judgment of the law can be overdone, or oh, I'm not over, overcomes not the right way. We can, we can be freed from the judgment and the condemnation through repentance. And he has not done it. His works do not measure up, and there is no repentance, so the Persians are coming. And just like God used the Assyrians to take Israel, who were found wanting, and to exile, and did not repent, and then he brought the Babylonians to take the Assyrians and the, Jude, the people of Judah, who were found wanting and did not repent, and now he's bringing the, um, the Persians to the Babylonians, who are not repenting, and they've been found wanting. And this is the message we talked about in the prophets. The prophets painted this picture that God often uses other nations to punish the nations. He used Israel to punish the Canaanites. And now the Persians are coming. Then, on Belshazzar's orders, Daniel was clothed in purple, a golden collar was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed third ruler in the kingdom. And in that very night... now. A lot of people have said, wait, that's not right. Daniel said that he didn't want any part of all this gold and that kind of stuff, and now he's kind of going, there's the kink in Daniel's armor. That might be true. Okay, Daniel's one of those very rare people that you can't really find a whole lot of bad things about him. And God loves pointing out bad things about all of his people because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But there's not a whole lot of that with Daniel. But it also could be very likely that when the king and all the officials are doing things to you, you can't really stop them, okay? It's like when you're overwhelmed, like you've seen this in movies or maybe even happened to you, like when all these busy, buzzy people come in and they start overwhelming you and throwing things on you, you can't really stop it. You're not physically powerful enough. And you don't really say, no, king, because that doesn't go over with cocky kings either. 
And so there could be just a sense of, it doesn't say that Daniel received it. It does not say Daniel accepted it, just as they threw it upon him. So this could be interpreted either way. This could be interpreted either way. And that very night, Belshazzar and the Babylonian king was killed. So Darius the Mede took control of the kingdom. And when he was about 62 years old, Cyrus comes in. And historically speaking, we know that this is true. That very night. See, what was interesting was that the Persians had already were at the Babylonian city walls. And they had been there for several weeks already. One of the reasons that Belshazzar immediately put all this on Daniel, like, why would Belshazzar just immediately think, oh my gosh, he's totally right. Unless the Persians were already there. And they were already about ready to come through. And that's true. The Persians had actually been there for a while. They had put the city under siege. But the Babylonians were so cocky. They were so cocky that nothing could happen. Because no one had ever been able to defeat the city of Babylon. In fact, the Babylonian city walls were so wide, they could have chariot races on the top of them. They were wider than the, the chariot races. They would, we know from historical writings, they had four chariots side by side that would ride along the wall, tops of the wall, and race around the city for everybody to see. That's a wide wall. Who in the world would you ever think could break through that wall? And there was this great cockiness that was there. But this river, Euphrates, actually flowed through Babylon. And Cyrus actually rerouted the river around the city so he could go through the drainage work once it was all dried up and come into the city. And his people actually opened the gates to him too. So there's different rumors of going on, like whether the gates were opened up to him or whether he worked through the drainage. So one demonstrates his great um, think, um, strategies. The other one shows how the people are against him because the people were so angry that Marduk had been dethroned or or, um, um, not appreciated by Nabonidus that they were excited to bring Cyrus in. He would just walk right in with no resistance at all because this was God's will. Now remember in Isaiah and chapter in the 40s, several chapters, 42 and 3 and 4 and on, Cyrus is the only king, well, he's the second. He's the only non-Jewish king that's predicted by name that he would come. And long before Cyrus is ever born, long before the Persians ever turned into an empire, Isaiah predicted that Cyrus would be anointed by God and used by God to bring the people back to the land. So this is obvious to God's will. Between that prophecy and this passage, it's obviously that this is God's will. God brings this Babylonian king down. Because unlike Nebuchadnezzar, this king did not repent. And there's always condemnation for the unrepentant. Okay, I just keep getting stuck. Okay, so he's just told him that you're pretty much done for, and he rewards them. And I'm not giving that. I would th- if he has presence of mind to say, this is great wisdom, why then why not? I don't know. I'm just, I'm getting stuck there. Probably in the same way that Nebuchadnezzar was really impressed by everything that Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah had done in chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3, and yet nothing changed in him. It's this idea where you can worship knowledge and you can worship people's ability to figure things out 
and you can be amazed by that and see the truth of it, but that doesn't mean that it's going to change your cockiness and your behavior. I had a friend who was in my Bible study for over five years, and we went through the entire Bible together. It was a small group, and we were really close, all of us in this Bible study. We ate meals together. We were friends. We went to movies. We went to parks. Like, it was just one of those Bible studies where we did life together. And he was not a Christian. He was actually more faithful to the Bible study than all the other Christians in the Bible study. And he went through the entire Bible with us and truly saw God's character. And at the, when, we, when our paths started going different ways and the Bible study kind of came to an end because kids were coming into our lives and that kind of stuff, and th- things just, life goes on, and people start, this was one of our last nights together. It's not the last night we ever saw him because we we're still friends, but you knew when there's that sense of regularity it will affect other things eventually. And that was kind of like pushing him a little bit, not in a pushy kind of a way, an annoying way, but just kind of like, it's been five years, dude, and this is our last Bible study. Like, what the heck? Come on. Like, you, you, you know more than most Christians do because we have really gone verse by verse through the whole Bible. And he basically said, he said, it is so obvious that you're God is the most powerful, trustworthy, faithful God of anything that I've encountered. And he studied a lot of religions. But I like being in control of my life. And all I could think of is the Hebrews passage. That is, when they have this knowledge, there's a part that you can know so much about God and reject it that it's almost impossible to come to him ever. And I know that's a bigger issue, but we talked about that in the book of Hebrews. So if you don't know what I'm talking about, listen to audio. But... And that was a very heart-sinking, and we did keep in touch over a while, and there's been, even now, there's been no change, and that was years ago. And so I think there's just a lot of that. Like, he was wowed by God, and he saw the truth in it. But, and that was, that night when I went home, not only was it so sad, but I had this, like, revelation as I thought about a lot of other things in my life, and I realized Everybody's excuses are just crap. No, nobody rejects Christianity because there's not enough evidence or that this Christian did this bad thing to me and now I'm angry. It really, those are all just shallow excuses for deep down inside. They like their autonomy. They like being in control. And that was not only a sad night, but a revelation that that's really what the Bible's talking about. That's the core. That's the core. And, and so, yeah, he was wowed by God. He was amazed. He oftentimes said, that's really cool. I never knew that. And yet in the end, it was like, but nothing's going to change. Nothing's going to change in my life. And I think that's like Belshazzar. He's incredibly cocky. And he's amazed by the wisdom because Babylon has elevated wisdom up as the highest ultimate good. And he's seen a truth there. And he rewards him. And there could even be a little bit of, if I rub Daniel's head, then maybe that good luck will come off and it won't actually come true. And people in the ancient world often thought that. If you take care of your prophets and you keep them close like a rabbit's foot, then you can protect yourself from these bad things that are happening because there's no way anything bad would happen to me at the hands of this God when this God's special person is with me. And so there could be even a little bit of that. That's a very common pagan way of thinking as well. And so it just comes down to pride. 